everybody. This is your third favorite co-host, Tanner, here, to bring in our next episode, which is going to be a live recording from the 2022 Spring ACOAP Conference. We are the official podcast of ACOAP, and this is going to be another one of those awesome live episodes that we recorded on stage. But this time, Andy and John take two of our special guests to go through a topic that is really awesome, thinking beyond emergency medicine. I hope you all enjoy it. This is one of our podcasts that is sponsored by Vapotherm. And if you guys enjoy this type of content, please subscribe and check us out on our website, blog sites, etc. Enjoy. We're here, to, the folks from EM Over Easy, and we're going to do, again, a two-parter um, in the discussion. And we wanted to bring specifically Jacob and Karen because they have two very unique skill sets that are outside of the emergency department. And so if you guys have been under a rock, the last two years of the emergency department have been a little rough, right? And that's probably been an understatement. Um, we went from complete in-person meetings to complete virtual meetings to changes in care, daily updates from your family of this crazy therapy and this crazy thing. And my, my cousin said this, and to say it's been a rough two years might be an understatement. Remember visitors it used to be a thing. Everybody used to bring like their whole family. That's true. And, and I, now it's like they have little wristbands. It's like an exclusive clip. Oh, you're in. Is, is it bad that I'm actually okay with that part of it? That... I, I didn't say it was bad. I was simply pointing it out. Okay. Like, nice. that it was a thing. Remember nice. that? That's so when we think about like, what's been the worst part of the last two years, what has it been? For you guys, I so I, I'm in a little unique spot too. So I was in the middle of training, so left residency, finished residency, and then go on to fellowship training in surgical critical care, which I will say was a perfect timing, because conveniently our COVID numbers didn't get so bad that the surgical intensivist side had to take over all the COVID cases, which was nice. So I was a little bit protected from that. Now that being said, it did significantly impact some of the training opportunities and, and, and things like that along the way. But the transition back to emergency medicine, now splitting time in the surgical ICU and emergency medicine has been that most difficult period. COVID was getting better last summer. It's like, hey, numbers are getting better. Very good. I'm like, I somehow dodged this major bullet. And then Delta came and Omicron came. And I said, what in the world did emergency medicine turn into? So for me, transitioning back into emergency medicine as a dual role was really, really difficult um, for myself and my family and how to, how do I take my own risk and their risk and things like that along the way. Yeah, I think for me, and uh, I know that it's the ACOEP family and the EM over Easy Live family, it was really hard for me because my dad passed away on February 24th, 2020. And uh, he'd been sick for a while, but his death was somewhat sudden. And not only did my dad pass away, but then three weeks later was the height of the pandemic. And rewind two years ago, none of us knew what we were doing at the start of the pandemic. At my hospital, they actually told us not to wear a mask at eight o'clock in the morning. And then that had changed by 3 p.m. that afternoon. That's how rapidly things were changing. And I think the hardest part of the pandemic for me was just the isolation. Uh, Number one, you know, we all take the Hippocratic Oath, but I don't think I ever really thought that I could get deathly ill from just doing our job every day. And uh, just to give you an example, I didn't see my sister or her family for a whole year 
they were down in Virginia and they were just really squirrely about COVID and, you know, how do we catch it and how do we protect ourselves? And I think the hardest part was just the isolation. And the hardest part now is kind of what Jacob described as the roller coaster, right? So we have the peak and then we have the valley and then another peak comes and here we go again. And how long is our resilience really going to last? And I think on top of the COVID experience, some other things happened in the last two years in terms of EM. There was the workforce study, which if you haven't had a chance to read it, the sky is not falling. I don't want to tell you that's what the cliff notes say, but the sky is not falling. And then you add a month ago, um, we had the first match where a, a large chunk of people didn't match into our specialty. So there's a lot of messaging that maybe EM isn't the place to be. Yeah, and it, you know, I've seen it a lot as, um, as a program director. Uh, the fear sometimes that is in students' eyes and residents' eyes about what the future looks like. Um, coming particularly, I mean, not that it's ever a great time, right? But coming particularly when people are just starting to kind of wrap themselves around, okay, we understand COVID's going to be cyclical. We understand that we may be impacted, but but we we feel like we've gotten over the biggest chunk of it, right? We feel like we've gotten over the, the influx, like we've, we've made it through. So at my particular shop, that's exactly what happened, right? We just got into like the, the post, the recovery a little bit, um, you know, like in depression, when you think things are starting to get better, that's the most vulnerable point. Why did and, you call it depression, John? Yeah, like, because that's what it was. And then and like everybody was in it. Everybody was mentally in this spot where like there was like a little glimmer of hope. They were about to get out of bed and then they put out that dang report, which is important, I know. But like the timing in my universe just was horrible. And it was like the double strike, right? Like you were having to call people, you're okay, you, you will have a job, I promise you, you will be able to work, it's gonna be okay. Um, but yeah, it, it, all those things kind of happened and it really created a lot of discussion about the what ifs. What if I can't practice emergency medicine like I envisioned? Like, you know, when I went in, I had this like thought of what my job was gonna look like and now, it seems like even for all of us just practicing, our jobs are way different now, I think, than they were a few years ago. Um, and so uh, one of the questions I often get is like, well, what can I do if I wanna kind of have some other options on the plate? Yeah, when you talk about the last two years, I, I think about prior to the pandemic, um, I was still living in Ohio working at doctors, 100% emergency medicine, that's all I did. Uh, moved to Florida right before Delta, where when I moved to Florida, to be honest, our department maybe saw 100 people up until that point. So three months after it started, nothing really happening in Florida. And then Delta hit, and all of a sudden our ICUs were full. We had overflow unit ICUs, and my, my clinical practice went from 100% EM to 50-50 EM in critical care. Um, I never did a critical care fellowship, but I trained at a four-year program with a lot of critical care experience. And now that I've, COVID is on its way out, I still pick up critical care shifts because I really like critical care. Now, granted, they're proceduralist shifts. I don't do the their sodium correction and all those other fancy things. It's mostly there for vent management, central lines, A lines and stuff. But it's made me realize that like the training we have as EM prepares us at baseline to work outside of our department. And that's something that I undervalued until the pandemic. And so when we wanted to have this conversation, we wanted to talk about how really when we look at the future of EM, um, it might not be what you're currently practicing. And as John mentioned, just rewind two years, and the way you're currently practicing is different than you were two years ago. And one of the solutions to maybe each of our futures is to build a niche within emergency medicine and 
kind of build that into our practice. So as we thought about who our guests were going to be, that's why we brought in Jacob and Karen, because Jacob decided to do it straight out of training. So Jacob, give us a little bit of a rundown of how you went about doing it. So um, I'm going to say John and Andy tried to talk me out of it. We did. <laughs> said, said, what are you thinking? You want to go do more training and not get paid? I said, well, I don't know. It seems like a good idea. So, But for me, it was... I was I was that guy in residency that was like, where's Jacob? Oh, he's doing a line. Where's why is he in the ICU again? He's not even on that rotation. So for me, it was how do I take how, how can I really enjoy what I do? And I love emergency medicine from the time some, somebody shows up, the beginning of the resuscitation. But I really started to feel towards the end of residency um, that I needed to do more and wanted to do more. And for me, it was about career longevity and how can I go to work every day and deal with the grind of emergency medicine and still enjoy it when I'm doing it for six months straight. And for me, it was maybe I need a week off here and there to take care of people a little bit longer. Um, for me in the surgical ICU, trauma, neurosurgical, and um, some of our surgical population to be able to get to know the patients, get to know the families, and, and enjoy that aspect of medicine and actually see people get better. Because what I found in emergency medicine was people died, more people die, and certainly with COVID, it was more and more people dying, and I never saw people get better. And for me, it was how can I give to patients, give to families, and in, in essence, give back to myself and my family for better career longevity and enjoyment of what I, what I enjoy doing. Um, and that was a way for me to um, enter into that venture with the caveat of, if I don't love emergency medicine 20 years from now, I can do surgical ICU. Or if I hate doing surgical critical care, I can, I can do emergency medicine. Um, and it gave me a few venues to, to look at down the road um, for, for various options. <laughs> Karen, sorry. Now, we'll, let's highlight Karen. So you, you've gone back and done neuro, neurology. That was not your jam when you graduated from residency. Correct. So what made you want to do that? So I'll try to sum it up briefly. Um, I talked about my dad passing away uh, two years ago. And uh, to give you a little bit of history about my mom, my mom had a really significant traumatic brain injury in 2008. There's a community here in Florida called The Villages, if you've heard of it. It's a crazy place. So it's a little crazy. My yeah, mom's yeah. okay, though. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you guys who don't know, it's uh, there's a lot of... Um, tomfoolery among the elderly in the villages because basically just a big frat house with yes. golf carts and alcohol yeah it is and everybody's over 65 so it's a great combination yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and so her traumatic brain injury actually happened you have to picture that the villages is this huge town but they get around in golf carts and uh, she fell out of the golf cart one morning the golf carts can go about 25 miles per hour and at the time it didn't have seat belts it does now and I was only a year out of residency when she had her accident. And she had a really bad traumatic brain injury. She had blood everywhere. She had a skull fracture through her foramen magnum. She got airlifted as a Jane Doe to Orlando. And we were really, really lucky. You know, As I sit here 14 years later, my mom's made a full recovery. You guys wouldn't know the difference. There's some little cognitive delays that we know. And when this opportunity uh, came along to be part of a neurological emergency department, I kind of thought, you know, who wants to do that? 
<laughs> Neurology is the hardest complaint. That's that the see. worst. Stroke alerts. My, that's my least favorite patient. It's more charting. I got to talk to 10 people. I got three nurses. What's their blood glucose? I don't know. Check it. Yeah, no, it's 100%. Yeah, and never mind the strokes. Like, what about the dizzy patients and the, the very fine line between neuro and psych mm -hmm. uh, yeah. all of the time? <laughs> uh, but when the opportunity came along, I thought, gee, Maybe this is my way that I'm supposed to give back because my mom did make such a good recovery and I was so thankful for that. And it's amazing, sometimes you just have to say yes to things in life and see where it takes you. And I think that's what happened. We started this neurologic emergency department in Trenton, New Jersey with some dedicated neurosurgeons. And that actually fell apart for a couple years. But I think what Jake was talking about is that led to a different opportunity in a community hospital that was just looking for a director of, I think we called it neurologic emergency services. And they wanted me to come in and you know help their door to needle times and help their metrics and help their flow. And then eventually things came full circle and we're now doing the neurologic department in Pennsylvania. And I think that it's an innate feature that we have in emergency medicine where we always wanna be, we're always busy and I think always part of us wants to be the best at what we do. And I thought, you know, maybe it's time for me to separate myself a little bit and look into do a neurocritical care fellowship. Because not only, you know, I really like the true emergencies, but what other longevity would it give me outside the emergency room? You know, could I go rotate through a stroke floor? Could I do time in the neuro ICU to kind of mix it up? because it's no secret that we're all getting a little crispy in emergency medicine, especially after the past two years. And I always just kind of like to have that backup plan in place or just keep my options open. So I love in both of your stories, you mentioned your family. Because I remember trying to talk to Jake about doing surgical critical care. Um, I remember he, we went to breakfast and I was like, so what, what's the plan? And he's like, surgical critical care. And I was like, you're the dumbest person that I know. Why would you ever, like, why do you want to work with surgeons? They're the biggest a-holes. And I, and that was, that was our, our conversation back and forth. And he's like, well, I like procedures. And I was like, okay, well you can just do an ultrasound fellowship. Like I tried to talk him into all of the other specialties I could think of, but surgical critical care was by far not the one we were trying to talk him into. But the more he talked about it, I remember you talking about the time you said, I have to find a balance that I can take home every day. And I think that's where you found surgical critical care and what it sounds like, Karen, where you found being a stroke emergency doctor. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah so totally. what the question, John, is how do we find that balance and use our baseline skills as EM doctors to go there? Yeah, and, and I think that both of your stories are incredible for sure. And I think one of the things that people encounter is they have this um, fear of going back to, to fellowship or specialized training. But, but that's one way of doing things. But there are so many other ways of revitalizing and finding different things within your career space. I, anybody that knows me at all um, knows that I loved academics and teaching ever since I started as a, as a resident. I was, I don't know if I was the only one, but I was probably amongst a handful of interns that when my program director asked me like a week into residency, you know, what I was thinking and was I enjoying being emergency medicine resident? I was like, yeah. And he's like, what do you, do you kind of, you know what you want to do? Kind of the, like, when you, when you leave, do you think you're going to want to like work in an academic or go back to Virginia or whatever it is? And I was like, no, I want your job. 
um, uh, which um, wasn't as threatening as it sounded. I mean, I had a lot of years of work to do, but ultimately I achieved that goal, right? Because I, I've told many people this. I don't think I would be to the level of happiness that I am now if I were doing pure clinical EM. And for some people, that's what they, that's their passion 100% and that's what they want to do. And that's amazing. And you are certainly empowered to do that. But I, I find that most of my colleagues have these outside interests. And um, when I say outside, I just mean outside the, the clinical showing up and doing the shift. And um, more and more I'm seeing people um, interested in uh, like quality and safety, which is a really, um, it, there was a time where it was never an emergency medicine doc's purview to be involved in quality and safety. You generally weren't even involved in hospital operations. And I think more and more places are finding that ER physicians make fantastic chiefs of staff. They make fantastic decision makers. Um, they put them on things called tiger teams, like quick um, response to problem teams. Mm -hmm. And the problem can be anything. Um, and quality and safety is actually a lot of what we we do. We don't realize it, but a lot of, you know, being the emergency physician overseeing a busy, undifferentiated patient in a fast-paced environment where you frequently do things that in other parts of the hospital would freak people out, like overriding medications, not cross and triple checking certain drugs, right? Like working with a tight-knit team and preventing errors in real time but we also understand the importance of, you know, preventing errors and using quality techniques. So it's, it's really fascinating seeing all of the things that people go into. And I specifically remember um, as I was coming up through residency and, and moving early into my attending years, we actually hired um, two emergency physicians that at the same time decided they wanted to go into palliative care, which is – which – feels like it's a different, like, opposite direction, but, but not really, right? They are like, look, we're there. We know all about the end of life. We've seen it happen. We've participated in the process, and that gives us great joy, and we want to do it. So there were so many different avenues um, that people have. I would just encourage, um, I think the, the key thing is start thinking about it when you first start feeling crispy, um, whether it's in residency or five years out or 10 years out or, you know, it was behind you. Um, it, because it will take a little time to do that pivot. Um, and I think that's the thing people fear the most is the time that it takes away. Yeah, I, I still tell re my residents and um, any people I interact with, we still practice the best specialty in the world. I firmly believe that every time I go into work, I get to see patients and do things that other people don't get to do and don't get to see. That being said, it's hard to do it 16 shifts a month, over 160 hours. Like the continual punch in the face is good on some days and not great on others. And so finding that kind of balance, um, and I hate that word because balance doesn't really exist. There's nothing in my life that's balanced, right? There's no 160 hours when I'm not at work that I can do anything else. But finding that spot where you um, aren't as crispy and that amount to where if I take this much of my clinical load down, the shifts I have left remaining, I'm still a good provider. I'm not angry when I'm at work, and I'm providing the best care. So if you were to give some tips to people before we pivot to our, the fun part of our show, um, if you were to give some tips to people thinking about that maybe full-time EM is no longer for me, what would they be? I think what's been mentioned is explore options. There are a lot out there. Um, and to the extreme of even maybe it's not medicine, 
um, I, I don't think is unreasonable. Now, that being said, there's a, there's a lot of options. Outside of fellowship, there are a number of opportunities for um, training and e even um, non-credentialed training options, even within critical care and resuscitation, that can certainly garner opportunities into um, more specialty fields. Um, and finding what works for you personally, finding what works for your family, and ensuring that it's like, I don't know, it, it always sounds selfish to say that you are happy uh, doing what you're doing. Because when you're happy and enjoying what you're doing, it's better patient care. It's better for you, better for the patient, better for family, and better for everybody around you. Because you can empower those around you to be successful. Um, so I think whatever that is, is finding whatever that niche is, whether it's education, whether it's toxicology, whether it's quality, whether it's becoming part of the medical staff, um, finding whatever opportunity that is to start giving back and, and also giving yourself some time to both invest in things that you enjoy as well as continue doing what you enjoy doing. I think that I'm going to answer that question in three different scenarios. And uh, the first scenario is, you know, clearly we're all very type A personalities in emergency medicine. And I think it's important to always kind of have more than one job, actually. So even though my full-time job is with the NeuroED and it keeps me incredibly busy, I do have a part-time job with the residency program where I trained. And even if I can only get there once every six months, it still helps me mix it up, give back to the people that have put me, you know, sitting on stage with you guys here today. And it also gives me kind of a sense of security we're talking about the EM workforce. And you know, if something catastrophic was to happen one day, that you still have a backup plan. And in the world of independent contractors especially, I think that it's easy enough to have some type of backup in place. So that would be first. Second would be, when you're earlier in your career, would be to not say no to opportunities. Because full disclosure, a lot of times I feel overwhelmed with everything, whether it's working clinically and doing my admin time as a director and then doing things like this, coming to conferences or collaborating on projects. Uh, the latest project I was working on is Tintinale is, going, is trying to turn her book into an app. And so I was, they reached out to me to do a couple of the neuro chapters. And I think earlier in your career, as much as you want to say no, you just have to put yourself out there because when I come to ACOEP, and I know this sounds so cliched, and you guys probably have heard me say it three times already just this morning, but it is a family. And I'll go back rejuvenated again by not saying no to coming to conferences or to like the Tintinale project and meeting other people. And then the third thing would be is, as you get a little bit later in your career, is don't be afraid to say no <laughs> and put yourself first. And um, I might be getting closer to that point lately because it's really important, like Jacob was saying, you, you have to figure out your priorities and is it career and is it family and what is it? Is it life in general? And to just make sure that you're taking care of yourself. So I think that is a great uh, three-point wrap-up and summary for... Uh, I was going to say, Karen took two of mine. So. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it was a yeah, she, we didn't talk about this, by the way. Right. So that's awesome. Yeah, that was, uh, that was perfect.